This is Chapter 68 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we shake up a long-held belief about an American literary classic. We'll introduce you to an author who borrowed heavily from her own experiences as a mom to write her debut novel. And this week's speech read reminds us love comes in all shapes and sizes. The Great Gatsby is an enduring American classic that has inspired ballets, at least five Hollywood films, an opera, and even a computer game. It's required reading in American classrooms, and it's even taught in schools in Iran. More on that a little bit later. While there's no doubt Long Island's North Shore inspired F. Scott Fitzgerald, what if I told you there are some people out there who think that the coastal Connecticut town of Westport was also a big influence? That person is author and history teacher Richard Webb, and he makes a strong case for his argument. I recently chatted with him about shaking up the status quo. Your book is called Boats Against the Current, and you really do go against the current of established thinking with your claim that Westport, Connecticut, and not Long Island was the inspiration for the classic The Great Gatsby. Tell us what brought you to this conclusion. That's exactly why we titled the book that way, and of course we took it that title from almost the last line of The Great Gatsby. I grew up in Westport, about a quarter of a mile from the honeymoon cottage that Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald lived in. And back when kids played outside, uh, when I read the book, Beautiful and Damn, I was stunned to read the geography in, of Westport in the book. Half the book is set in that uh, locale. And... I started to think, well, if that was the case, and by the way, what you can do is literally hold the book in your hands and walk about the neighborhood, and uh, we're going to start leading tours doing that exact same thing with, with you know, Gatsby and Beautiful and Dam. That began to kind of dimly wonder whether or not uh, Gatsby had been influenced by Westport, um, but I, I, I really couldn't put it together. But in 1996, I read an article in The New Yorker by an esteemed author named Barbara Probe Solomon, who had grown up across the bay from where the Fitzgeralds were. And the Fitzgeralds were living on the corner of a 175-acre estate uh, owned by a mystery millionaire. So she, knowing Westport cold, began to put the pieces all together, and the article was called Westport Wildlife and it was in the New Yorker in 1996. And what I've done, and my uh, we're making a documentary as well, my, my documentary partner, uh, Robert Stephen Williams, is we've just taken her idea, and for the last five years, we've been investigating it. And to our considerable joy, uh, people have begun to con- convert. We're very happy as the Fitzgeralds, had three grandchildren, and one of them's Bobby Lanahan, and she became an early convert. Uh, we also had the wonderful Charles Scribner, who's the grandson of the Scribner who published Hemingway and Wolf and Fitzgerald, jump on board, and we've had the Fitzgerald academic community jump on board. So, yeah, it's been against the current, but it's fun. It's you know we've been in a boat struggling against the current paddling furiously, but we've got a smile on our face the whole time, really. (laughs) So I know that there are still some detractors. And for those people who are listening who might find themselves in that boat, can you give us a few examples about why you feel so strongly that this is the case? 
Well, what was wonderful was that we never went out when we were presenting our argument and saying, this is it and we are right. As a matter of fact, we did the opposite. We would come and we would ask at the beginning of any presentations, what do you think of this theory? Please push back on it because uh, we would love, we'd love to uh, know any criticism. And in every presentation, we said, uh, do you think we're crazy? And lo and behold, uh, people didn't think we were crazy. And, you know, what's fun is that it's not just based in Westport. It's got a lot of great neck uh, in it as well. As my film partner, Robert, said, it's a great quote. It's a beachy blend. Gatsby's a beachy blend of great neck and and Westport. So, you know, those that support the great neck theory, they're right. Um, What's funny that we and and the Great Neck Historical Society has been a big fan of what we're doing, and we're actually going to go present our thesis to the Great Neck community in the fall, uh, which should be fun and interesting. Um, and it, 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 let me just throw out a couple of things that made us question that uh, it just wasn't Great Neck. For example, in Great Neck, they lived in the middle of. The town. They didn't live on the coast, and they didn't live on the corner of a mystery millionaire who, by the way, was named Frederick Lewis and inherited $300 million when he was just 21. And we, we found that there was a Gatsby Lane in Great Neck, which has led you know, a lot of people, understandably, to think that, uh, well, here we go. It's Gatsby. But that was actually built by a developer in the 80s. And uh, he, he named it that, um, you know, because Gatsby's tied to Great Neck, but it has nothing to do with with Gatsby. So it was stuff like that that was really fun. And at least 25 houses have been sold as the Gatsby house in Great Neck. 25. So <laughs> I heard one estimate that's as high as 50. And each one of these houses was dutifully uh, reported by the media, including uh, at times the New York Times, as this is the Gatsby house. So what's happened is, again, because there is such a strong roots to that book in Great Neck, but we also found evidence that there were strong roots here in Westport. So we welcome pushback. Uh, the, the whole reason we did this was to really make a 20-minute documentary for our local historical society, but then it grew up into this, it's monster. And I'm a teacher uh, that's just retired. And really, I know this sounds altruistic, but it's true. We just want people to read Gatsby. I want kids especially to read Gatsby because it is just such a phenomenal book. So you know, we, we, we've worked, actually, with a lot of people in Great Neck, and they've been absolutely fantastic. Uh, and we appreciate their support as well. So it'll be fun this fall to see what the great debate will be. You're hoping not to get booed. <laughs> you know what? I, if it elicits that passion, you know, I think that that's absolutely fabulous. And uh, so that's okay. But I know that... Even some of those people that boo at the time might go back and go, hmm, well, maybe. So we'll see. Does this really boil down to like a local pride thing where, you know, you, you're a Westport resident, 
you see this, you, it makes sense to you, and you really just want Westport to share in some of the credit? <laughs> That's a great question. And here's what's fun about uh, uh, Fitzgerald. First of all, when we went on tour of, of a massive amount of, well, we've been, that's all we do, and interview. When we would go to different communities, each of them would claim Gatsby as their own, which we found fascinating. And certainly we are too. But we found that everywhere we went where Scott had some sort of uh, connection. Now, so this could be Montgomery, Alabama, where Zelda was from. It could be uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, where Scott was from. Of course, Great Neck. And, you know, Scott once famously said that uh, all of his protagonists were F. Scott Fitzgerald. And by the way, many of his female uh, leads were uh, Zelda as well. So it's fun. Uh, You know, Gatsby's also an amalgam of at least nine people. And and we write about that in the book. So absolute pride thing. and that, again, shows the tenacity of this, this wonderful book that has just captured American imaginations. But uh, the thing is, and again, this is not a shameless plug for the book or the film, but we've actually proven extremely powerfully that Westport is at least a, a part of the story. I, in researching your book and doing some reading before this interview, I just have to bring up this one thing that you said to the Times in reference to there's there's one glaring example that people like to point to, which is the drive from um, Long Island to Manhattan and saying, well, there's no way because, you know, he wouldn't have passed through Connecticut to get there. Um, but you you told them that it had a lot to do with all the drinking that had been going on. Well, it's, it's a couple of things. One, that drive from Long Island to New York in the Valley of the Ashes. I mean, that's definitely uh, from Get Great Neck, and that's definitely in Queens. I, I, it's around where uh, City Field uh, is today. So, you know, there, that part is, is absolutely, again, there's a lot from Great Neck that's influenced it. What we had fun with was that in The Great Gatsby, Scott has his characters travel from on the LIRR to New York. And, you know, what you arrive at Penn Station. Uh, but the problem is the description of the trip and where they arrived is actually Grand Central. And we, we show that in the book. And that's a very famous example. Uh, Ring Lardner of Great Neck fame, his, his friend in Great Neck, pointed that out about another geographic mistake he made. And, and Barbara... Uh, pointed out. And so in, and we show this too, in Great Neck, it was the absolute peak of their partying. And by the way, they never wrote, so it was, it was difficult. He was working on a play. You'll see some quotes from Scott that where he even admits he's not gotten a lot done. So one of the things we postulated was that they both went back to these memories that were pretty clear and by the way, they never again wrote about the Great Neck House. They wrote about the Westport experience. She wrote about it in her only play, Scandalabra. She wrote about it in her only novel, Save Me the Waltz. Scott wrote about Westport in two short stories and one big one called Cruise of the Rolling Junk. He wrote about it in The Beautiful and Damned, and he wrote about it 
and Gatsby. And they both wrote about it in multiple letters that they passed to and fro. So what was fun as a historian was that when when I actually looked at the evidence, I just didn't, you know, read secondary sources and base my when I actually went and, and, and dug into it, this whole other you know, scenario emerged, and it, it, it's very real, and it's very, very fun. <laughs> That's just, one thing is this is all really, as hard as it is, it's, again, it's just been really, really fun. So you touched on it a little bit earlier, but I guess really what you're hoping to to get here is to foster discussion about what is a great American book. It, it, exactly, because that book has... First of all, I always encourage my students to read it every summer. Just read it every summer because it's such a lovely summer book, and I encourage everybody to do that. It should be read every year, and and I've always told people, at least read it every 10 years because, you know, it's funny. We're we're a different person every decade when when we read a book. Its lyricism is stunning. And it is the great American dream. And, and this, this, the thing about the great American dream is you can look at it as a curse. I was always very interested that, you know, a founding document of a country has never had in it that people should be happy, but we did. And I've always loved that because I think people think, well, if that's written down, we should be. And, of course, that's a very hard thing to reach and get. So that idea of the green light in American history um, is powerful. We all go for that green light in one way or another. And you could say that most people are inevitably disappointed that they don't get it because that's the promise of America. That's the promise of what we're supposed to do. And it's really hard to do in the end. And and many people fail at it. So I, I just love the pathos. I, I think he captured the essence and spirit of America in 50,000 words. And that's why it's such, I just, everybody should read it. You know, what's fun is that in Iran, in some schools where it's taught, the hero is not Jay Gatsby. It's actually... Tom Buchanan, which is fascinating because Tom Buchanan, um, you know, murders, it's an honor killing, and he murders the man who's trying to, um, so I I have a teacher friend in Iran that was telling me that that's how it's often often taught. So it's got worldwide significance, too. I think it's time to uh, dust off my copy and uh, read it again. Oh, thank you so much for uh, for having me. For parents of children with special needs, the struggle to find a support network is constant. It's this world that Maxine Rosaler shows us in Queen for a Day. She visited our studios and spoke with our Marla Diamond about the real-life experiences that shaped her debut novel. The story begins with a mom, Mimi Slavitt, who is in denial that her son Danny is autistic until his odd behavior becomes just too much for her to ignore. And I guess a lot of parents with special needs children 
do this, not wanting to believe or too frightened to believe that something is wrong with their child. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. In my case, it was very extreme. I mean, even after Benji's diagnosis, I kept on trying to convince myself that he didn't really have autism. I'd go um, to the DSM-4 and make a list of things and say, no, he doesn't have the five (laughs) qualifying diagnostic criteria. So tell us a little bit about Benji and in turn, you'll be telling us about Danny. Yeah, Danny and, and Benji are very similar, actually. I cover him from four and a half until until age 13, and he was behaving very strangely for a very long time. Um, he was spinning around in circles, burrowing him, himself under the sofa. Many of the stories in this, in this collection are based on, they're all based on reality. However, right. since I'm a fiction writer by trade, I guess you could say, um, I fictionalized them all. So I created dialogue and situations, etc. So anyway, so he was behaving very strangely. He was like, you know, he wasn't really um, talking at the age of two. Mm-hmm. I remember he was really silent. I had this one memory I've never shared with anyone before. It's, it's strange that I should just be telling you about it now. And I remember I was sitting on the bed with my daughter, who I cut out of the book. Um, and, um, and I was just looking at him and thinking about how silent he was. Mm-hmm. And he was two. Right. Um, but I just refused to believe it. And so anyway, so he was at nursery school. And um, he was at actually this Jewish school. It was right. I was a copy editing books at the time and novels and I was um it was near Starbucks which was in the book um you know it's like <laughs> Free a lot of some of it's some of, some of the facts are true but again the situations or characters are different yeah. um and the nursery school teacher told me there's something wrong with him anyway as the first story covered we were really were seeing this psychologist the, le- uh, the shrink is you know shrink I don't want to call him a psychologist um and you know he said there was nothing you could put a label on mm. and we knew everyone told us there was something wrong and I once had to go to some meeting, I forget what it was, um, and I had a friend babysitting for him, and he's actually scaled, he was about to topple over the, a 40-foot wall. Oh, my God. And um, my friend said to him, you know, I know kids, I've babysat for kids, there's something really wrong right. with Benji, you better get him tested. Right, so everybody saw it, but you didn't or didn't choose to see it? I didn't want to see it. Right. Um, and, and also this idiot shrink we were seeing said he was such an arrogant guy mm-hmm. um, and he said there's nothing you can quote unquote pin a label on so I just clung <clears throat> to that phrase yeah, yeah. forever so you went to see him for family counseling and you say in the book that your husband had written this long letter about uh, Danny or Benji's odd behavior and um, you you did something interesting in the first line of the book you reference the O.J. Simpson trial that you were talking with your husband all the way from your home in Upper Manhattan all the way to Lower Manhattan to see this, psycho- this psychologist and so that would be what n- 19, uh, late 92. 90s 92, 92 yeah. and I'm thinking that at that time they might not have had a lot of early intervention or um it might be tough to access services. Was was there a reason why you decided to put that historical reference first? My friend Joan, who was just amazing in there, I there I had I had to cut so much out of this book, but she too has an autistic kid. She said, "You know, Maxine, you better set it in a time frame." So I 
said it. That's how. That's why I put O.J. Simpson in there. And yes, there was nothing known about it. Um, and um, and parents were just left on their own, scrambling around. Yeah. And I went calling across the country. Um, and finally, um, I came, decided to do ABA applied behavioral analysis because basically, as I say in the book, and this is true, because it was the hardest thing to do. And I figured that if Benji was going to be cured, and also this this therapy promised a forty seven percent cure rate. Right. And so I figured, well, I got to do the hardest thing, and it seemed the most sensible. And there were so many other, you know, hokey things out there. So that's why I decided on that. And for years, because of that 47% cure rate, I clung to the belief way beyond the point that my husband, a.k.a. What, what did I call him? Because I kept on changing the names of the characters. Oh, um, Jake is Jake. his new name. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so Phil is his real name. Okay. He anyway. So so he believed that Benji. He knew that Benji wasn't getting cured. You you say that uh, your husband accepted that this was what was going to be, and you just couldn't. No, and I didn't even know that he had accepted it. Okay. No, I believed it. In. I, I, it was so difficult for me yeah. to absorb. Right. I think I don't think any mother of a child with a disability can fully absorb the enormity of that pro, of of what what that is, because ultimately, and that's what you always go, and you always go and think about what is going to happen to my son, my child when he's an adult, and then now we're all thinking. What yeah. is going to happen to our children when we're dead? When you're gone. Yeah. I've spoken to so many parents of uh, children with special needs, and that's that's their biggest uh, worry. Um, but uh, getting back to your main character, Mimi, she is at turns depressed, She, but she maintains her sense of humor. How much did that help you uh, through your journey with your son? You mean my sense of humor? Yeah. Um, I don't really, I really can't, I mean, I think that I've always, um, you know, I've always, that's just, just who I am, you know, I like, I like having fun, I like laughing about things and joking about, I joke, I'm very reverent, as you see some of those things in that, in that book, which I want, I think maybe I better not repeat some Very of funny. <laughs> but anyway, um, but no, I was, you know, what should I say, it was like, I, it's just the way I am, I live in the depths of darkness and despair, and then I have these moments of great levity, and that's that's who I am, and that's who I've always been. Survival skill, right? Yeah. So you break up the novel into short stories in which you speak about the counselors, the educators, the moms that you encountered along along the way, and some of these stories are heartbreaking, some of them are funny, some of them are silly, uh, but they all kind of speak to the aloneness of parents of children with developmental disabilities well that was terrifically that was that was very difficult for me i've always been a writer and so i've always lived a very solitary life Mm -hmm. um on my when i had my first child my daughter and she's now 29 i kind of felt a need for community i didn't have community then and then when benji because we lived in this sort of outer banks um you know um, like kind of a colony, I don't know what to call it. I forget. <laughs> okay. My husband has a clever way of characterizing it, but I forget what it is. But anyway, um, you know, and, and when Benji was diagnosed, oh my God, I felt so isolated. Um, and I was just doing this battle alone. Even though Phil was doing things with Benji, he certainly did the one-on-one. Um, and really, it's only now that Benji is 26 years old. Mm-hmm. And since his um, he graduated high school, which was 
you know, another terrifying, um, the, it, was, it just terrified me what was going to happen to him. This has been the best time of his life. We're doing something called self-direction. Okay. And I have, we have what's known as a fiscal intermediary, which is, um, we have this agency called um, Center for Family Support. And it's really, and then this woman, Linda Schellenberg, and it's the first time when I'm really doing everything except for getting, that I feel supported, um, you know, ironically enough. However, before when it was, the, I, I've always hired people, my own people, but the agencies were always taking a huge cut. Yeah. And so this central, this um, Center for Family Support, they're so humane. Most of the agencies aren't. They're out to get your money. Really? They really are. They're out to get your money and they, they do a lot of illegal things. That's a shame. That's a shame. In in all of the characters, the mom specifically, and and the woman who is supposed to place Danny and help you, and then it turns out she's not so great. Um, they're all very quirky in some way. One is constantly, you know, in the hospital, and she's got this pain and that pain, and eventually runs away from the family. The other one is completely absent mother. Another one's a single mom who gets extremely uptight when you decide to take up some of her weekend time. So do, do you think that these women were always like that? Or was it just that they needed to separate themselves or have their own thing rather than being completely immersed in their autistic child? Well, I think it really has to do with what your nature is. I think people are who they are. And I know that um, for me, um, I take things very hard, and the um, character in Queen for a Day takes things very hard. And some people know how to escape, and the character, or they need escape. Right. And the character in um, this time next year needed escape, and and she she knew how to escape. So I think it's really basically. Um, the nature of who they are, right? Um, and how they, and that's what that's how they deal with the situation. So she gets to be queen for a day, but Mimi is never queen for a day in the book. Well, I don't think anyone's really queen for a day. First of all, what a disgusting concept, right? Did you ever? I mean, you're too young to know that show. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, really. <laughs> yes, yeah, weird. To it me. was of my parents' generation. Yes, yes. Um, well, it was disgusting, and so it was just sort of like something that came up in the course of writing that story. Um, where I'm always trying to help out this friend of mine, who's the only friend, I, I desperately clung to her, just because she, because I clung to her misery, because I needed, misery really loves company, and I needed to know yeah. someone was suffering the way I was. Right, that you're not alone. Sure. Yeah, it's really, you don't want to be alone. Um, and so, just in the course of writing a story, I reached a point where she says, I gotta get away, I gotta paint. And I got I want to go someplace, yeah. and so then I just come pops into my head as the writer, and then I go stick it into the the characters' words. Well, why don't you go on Queen for a day? They gave free vacations, right, right. But she did. I mean, she did get to. She had this escape, and she left the kid with the husband, and then she and came she, back. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I guess I shouldn't have said that. Right? The, the, yeah. uh, you're. Your reference to, you know, the powers that be, I guess, you were battling the DOE or some special ed uh, section yeah, of called the DOE. The, it was but, called the Board of Education. Right. Time, but yeah. um, you refer every single time to that as the district, which to me, 
sounded very foreboding and very 1984-ish, which well, I that guess was, <laughs> that was the purpose. I thought that was pretty clever of me because, you know, uh-huh. I thought that, you know, I sort of wanted to give it a Kafkaesque kind of feel. Yeah. Because really dealing with a bureaucracy is a Kafka-esque experience. It really, it's it's really difficult. And I kept on referring it to different ways. And then I'm thinking, gee, I want to really make this seem like a monolith that you can't right. fight and that this 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 horrific structure. And so I kept on calling it the district. And so I thought that was that was a nice little touch. That was at the end. I figured that out. But it actually spoke to the difficulty <clears throat> of penetrating that and, and thinking that your son's life and future were in their hands and you were at their mercy. It was an horrific it was really the most horrible experience of my life. And as I say in the book, I think I say in the book, um, when I was going across the country interviewing parents, because the doctors knew nothing. They really knew nothing. Um, This was back in the 1990s. 90s. By the way, I just want to just um, interrupt myself and interrupt you, of course, because this is what I do. <laughs> um, you know, Sonny, I, 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 when I did this reading um, of my book, um, my lawyer, one of my lawyers was at the place and I said, well, I guess it's better now because they have more services. And she called out, no, it's worse. Hmm. So anyway, so yeah, now they have kind of like treatments or, you know, they, they, they sort of have an idea of what to do about autism. Yeah. At the time, no one knew. Um, parents were left on to their own devices. They spent millions of dollars, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They moved across the country. They moved across the street. They moved from state to state. Um, and we tried everything. Um, and that's what happened. And the district, it's very expensive, time-consuming to deal with something like autism. You're basically building a, a person from the from the ground up. Everything that other children um, absorb through osmosis, these children, children with autism, have to be taught. Right. And um, I, I don't know if you thought you were born into this role you know they say god doesn't give you more than you can handle um, or you sort of found your voice in advocating for for danny benji Uh, which which way was it well first of all i mean i'm sure you agree with me i mean because you're you seem really smart thank you really like no one no, you know, I, I just don't buy that thing that about God give, doesn't give you more than you could handle. I mean, some people take this and they just run in the, they just run away. Um, and actually, I have in, in Queen for a Day, there's an encounter that my character has with a woman on the subway, which is actually based on a friend. Of, my friend of mine told me this anecdote where she runs into a woman on the subway and the woman bursts into tears and mm-hmm. she sees her with her son and she says, I couldn't take it. I left. Mm-hmm. So no, I think that um, I don't think I think I've always been the same person. Um, however, I do have to say that I was never used to um, asking anyone for anything, and so at the beginning I was kind of very timid about it. Um, and um, as time grew on, as you know, as time progressed, I became like a warrior. Um, and I just and I'm never used to being rude to people, or I'm always really nice to people, and. Um, so, yes, um, but, you know, people have said, well, gee, this really taught you a lot. And, you know, I, I could have done without this lesson. Quite I'll frankly. bet you could have. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the book ends when uh, Danny is 13. Um, did he ever have a bar mitzvah? 
And what happens to him? How does he do? Well, okay, well, I'll tell you both. You know, you asked me two questions, so I'll ask right. you both, answer both of them. One is, you know, it's really interesting. I have this very orthodox friend. I, For some reason, I've always had a lot of friends who are orthodox Jews, although I'm not, I'm, you know, orthodox Jew at all. And oh, she kept on insisting that I get bar, Benji bar mitzvah, and Benji actually went to a special needs yeshiva because it was the only school that this, you know that's in the book and that's true. Um, and um, and we had I, we had a joke. I actually had this really irreverent joke that I would make, like whenever he had pork chow mein, I would say this is in honor of Sinai because you know I had such contempt for the place because, and he would say that too. Yeah. Things I've said, he sort of picks up on. Um, so yeah, so it was kind of a waste. Um, and no, I didn't. Um, I can't. I thought of doing it, but I said, "What's the point? It doesn't won't mean anything to him." So I know I didn't do it. Okay. And then, as far as what Benji's doing now, again, it's the best time of his life. I discovered in retrospect, and I kind of knew it all along. But a lot of parents who have um, kids with um, handicapped children, kids with disabilities. Um, um, we have to sort of lie to ourselves all the time. We always have to pretend that things are um, better than they are. He wanted to go to college. How is he going to go to college? Being in a classroom of six kids, two teachers, and often with an aide of his own. Um, but I had to do it, so I did it. So I hired aides to go to school with him. I called them mentors. And over the course of the last, I guess it's been, gee, five years, I've hired people and um, they go to school with him. And he first I figured I'd try BMCC because it was a small school. So he graduated there. He, you know, almost had a he had a 3.8 average. And now he's at City College majoring in chemistry. But this is by no means a success story. I hate that whole concept. Right. Because Benji, you know, and it, 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 this happened. Now I'm, I'm going to restrain myself from blabbing on. Right. Um, but. You know, but listen, he's, he's shown himself to be more capable than I ever imagined him to be. And just to sum up, um, you talk about building Benji up, which is something that from the bottom up, which is something that you talked about when he was three years old and you began teaching him words and phrases and the proper way to use it and the proper way to contain himself. So it seems that it's a really never ending job for parents of children with special needs and once I know you you mentioned in the beginning that when you're gone and your husband is gone you know who will care for Benji um, that is a concern of so many parents because well, the job never ends no it's terrifying and right now um, you know the family for center support a family of center the Center for Family Support um, is kind of maybe creating some sort of possible mechanism. But the main thing that I feel that's crucial is to collect as many people um, for ben who really love Benji, yeah. who really care about him, so they will be able to oversee who is hired to work with him when I'm dead. And so that's really my plan is to create a cushion of love a, a, you know I just want to surround him with love and I've never in my life um, really experienced um, created a universe that really is just that and I just that's what it should be in life but sure. it isn't obviously sure. but for but I'm able to do it for Benji and I just wanted to be able to find some way to sustain it and what do you hope people who pick up the book get out of it 
Well, you know, it's been interesting. Um, Benji's violin teacher. Benji plays violin. He's been, and she's, he is this great violin teacher. And his, her, her, his, her brother is autistic. And the mother, who's 82 years old, it's very interesting. She read my book and she just, it just, she loved it. And it made her feel, for, it made her, let her forgive herself. Because apparently a lot of parents with children with disabilities don't admit to their negative feelings. Don't admit to how hard it is. So I want that. I want people with the parents of children with disabilities to know that. You know, I mean, also, basically, I'm a writer. I'm a short, I was really afraid of identifying this book as a, as a book written by a mother, a child with special needs, because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I consider, I'm a writer first. Um, and so I, that was kind of snobby of me. Well, it's not mentioned in your little bio there. Yeah, I, tr- I, I tried to be circumspect about okay. it. Um, but, um, but um, you know, I find that sure, I mean, I, I, mean I, I wrote it the way I write any story. I love people. The only kind of people I like to write about are quirky characters. So it's their fun characters. And so I want people to enjoy reading the book. But also to know what this is about. And when they see a mother walking down the street with a kid with disabilities, you know, not to look at her, not to reduce her to uh, the mother of a, a pathetic mother. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you one more thing, okay? Because, you know, all these euphemisms that go around, it's funny. The mothers of children um, with kids in wheelchairs, they form a club. And guess what they call their club? The Crips. So, you know, we don't really, you know, the euphemisms really don't buy it. We live steeped in reality. We don't need to, we don't need to sugarcoat anything. Right, right. There's that humor again, which comes through so um, nicely through the book. And we should mention that it is a compilation of short stories, but um, all focused on this mother and her very special son. Uh, The book is called Queen for a Day. It is not the television show. It is Queen for a Day, written by Maxine Rosaler. Thanks so much for joining us on Author Talks, Maxine. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. The pursuit of the perfect family lies at the heart of Katie Regan's Little Big Love. Us adults know there's no such thing as perfect, but kids are a different story. And in this book, 10-year-old Zach is on a mission to mend his broken family. Katie tells us a little bit more. It's told through the eyes of three generations. Um, Zach, who is 10, his mom, who is uh, 30, and then his his granddad, Mick. It's set in Grimsby, which is a a fishing town in the sort of northeast of England. Um, And it's, in a nutshell, about uh, a story about um, Zach trying to find out the truth about his dad. He's always been told that his dad didn't want to know him and uh, has never even met him. But then something happens with his mom, um, uh, which his mom goes on a sort of disastrous date and she's a little bit drunk. And in her kind of like post date (laughs) sort of drunkenness, she kind of lets slip that his dad was the only man she ever loved. And Zach sort of sort of leaps on this and thinks there must be more to this story. I'm going to find out the truth about my dad. And in doing so, he kind of unravels a lot of secrets about the whole family. Um, And I suppose he kind of takes them apart and puts them back together again because they're quite broken, this family, through through a a sort of tragic event that happened in the past that's that's to do with his dad. Um, And so he doesn't just find out the truth about his dad. he He kind of finds out the truth about a lot of things in his family. 
And as you mentioned, you have you have three narrators, and yeah. I love how you capture the way Zach, the ten year old, thinks and speaks mm. and explains things. Mm. Did you just tap into your inner child, or did you have some help? Uh, well, I had some help in the form of a ten year old boy in my house. <laughs> so my son was ten when I was writing it. Um, so he, had massive, even though he really isn't anything like Zach, actually, he he was a huge help in making his voice authentic. And I would check things with him. Um, he's 13 now, but when I started the book, he was 10. And um, uh, so I would check things with Fergus, my son, and, and say, you know, would a 10-year-old say this? And he'd be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, uh, I would check, his, you know, how would you respond to something like this? And he would say, oh, well, I would think this and this. And so I used that as inspiration. I didn't, you know, Zach was his own person, but I, I did use, Fergus helped me a lot, my son. So I was very lucky to have a 10-year-old boy on, on my beck and call. Um, uh, what else? And, yeah, I mean, once I kind of got, it took me a while, actually, to get the voice right. I At first it was sounded, you know, it was quite difficult to get the tone right, to not to not make it sound like a book for children. Um, and that was quite hard. So you had to kind of, you know, make it an authentic child's voice, but have him for him to have um, for him to have sort of observations on life that would appeal to adults that that would that would say something to adults. And he actually sort of shines a light on on, I guess, his parents and his grandfathers and his whole family's kind of weaknesses with his kind of childlike optimism. He kind of um, he, he teaches them things. And one, yeah. and one of those things he has to go through, you also tackle bullying. Zach is put through some really heart-wrenching yeah. scenarios. Have you had to deal with that as a mom yourself? Um, a little bit. Nothing, nothing, nothing that bad, um, thankfully, um, at all. But, yeah, I mean, um, so, I mean, by no means has my, has my son been bullied to that extent. But... You know, he, he has been picked on like all children get picked on. So, you know, it's kind of dealing with their levels of self-esteem and, you know, how to kind of navigate, you know, helping him navigate that um, because, you know, it happens to all children and all children are perpetrators of it as well at some point, you know. Um, so, so to kind of, so we did, we have talked about that. Yeah. But um, I, to be honest, most of that was really just my imagination. I, I, I suppose when I was young, I experienced a little bit of bullying. Again, nothing on that scale, but I knew what, what those feelings were. You know, the sort of helplessness, and um, so yeah. And then, and then it just sort of took my imagination really to sort of take it one level further, and you know, for it to sort of imagine how it might be for someone if it was really bad. I think the what you do there, it kind of plays into what I've thought was your overall theme which is just at the heart your book's really about all different kinds of love yeah that's very true mm. yeah it is um you know it's about motherly love parental love you know um romantic love um zach has a really close friend tegan who he loves and they have a really close relationship she sort of helps him look for his dad and she's like his kind of um not his sidekick, but his his partner, you know, in in kind of detective partner, in his deputy, she she calls herself, in looking in this kind of mission to find out the truth about his dad, and they they have huge love for each other. So there's that kind of friendship love as well, um, and I think I think you know, Zach sort of 
he, he kind of learns he learns about love as the, as the as the novel goes on and that you know you don't just stop loving someone for example if, if they do something wrong you know with his I mean I, I don't want any spoilers <laughs> but you know his granddad who he sort of hero worships you know um he you know he, he's got he's got secrets and, and things and and I think Zach realizes that just because someone does something wrong you don't just immediately start stop loving them um and you don't stop loving them if someone dies you don't stop loving them if you know if you're not with them physically like his dad's not with him physically you know so he kind of learns a lot about the nature of love i think and on a very much lighter note there's also this love for food that's woven throughout the book i felt like you should have included recipes at the end (laughs) Uh, yeah i know it was talked about actually and i think in some of the sort of promotional material for the book that i did i did include a recipe for the lemon drizzle cake that he makes um yeah i mean he 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 loves to cook he loves to eat um and you know food for him can be sort of his enemy in that you know he 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 is um you know he's a fat kid basically um and he, he you know he wants to eat too much of the sort of wrong things and, a, and part of the story is about him getting a handle on that and kind of like you know uh, getting healthier and, and and part of him getting happier is for Juliet his mum to help him get healthier um but he also but on on the plus side he loves to cook you know he gets real joy out of out of making things just like his uncle was a chef um and so yes that that plays a part throughout the book the kind of um he he likes to make things with his uh with his nan he, when he goes to his nan and granddad's they make they bake cakes and so on and that was really fun to write about actually um the the food side of things it was really fun to sort of come up with little recipes and things that he could do now i know we've talked a lot about zach and you mentioned before this isn't a book for kids this is very no. much an adult book what do you mm. want readers to take away i think if if i could distill it down it's 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 kind of zach's faith and hope and optimism um i suppose i'd like readers to read this book and think yeah you know We've all got that inside us, the kind of hope that things will work out, that we will find out the truth, that we will, you know, we will not have our happy ending, but that we will, um, you know, find love in our lives. And I think that that can very often get quashed out of people. And it hasn't been quashed out of Zach, which makes him sort of a lovely character to write because he's still, no matter what, no matter the bullying, no matter that, you know, his mum doesn't have much money and life's not really easy for him. He never, ever, ever loses faith and hope that he will find out the truth about his dad, that he will mend the, mend the kind of breakages in his family. Um, and I think that that's, I guess, something that children can teach us, you know, not just that, but children can teach us that they haven't had that knocked out of them yet. And that's really nice. And if we can, if we can sort of hold on to that as adults and, you know, then that that would be, you know, a good thing. Well, I know that Zach and your book in general left me with a smile on my face. Oh, thank you. I'm really glad. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And that about does it for us this week. Next time, we ask author Karen White just how she felt when comedian Fred Arminson judged her new book by its cover. If you haven't seen the clip yet, go check it out between now and then. And while you're there cruising the internet, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.